0: The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org.
1: Continuing in our series in the Ten Commandments, the book of Exodus, Exodus 20. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you wouldn't mind turning to Exodus 20, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 3 this morning. How many of you have ever heard this line? What do I have to do to get you in this car today? What do I have to do to get you in this car today? Some of you might be cringing when you hear that line because it's a a stereotypical line that we hear when we think of who? Used car salesman, right? I say used car salesman because I think there's like a demotion that goes on with used car salesman versus new car salesman. And we hear that and we cringe. I, I cringe a little bit. And Dave Ramsey identifies several key tactics or characteristics of what used car salesmen's, salesmen do to get you to buy, to get you in, to get you hooked on purchasing a vehicle. And I want to make a note for those who are salesmen in this room that the tactics that I'm about to describe are not good and they're not you because I know those of you in the room who are salespeople, you're considerate, you're compassionate, you're honest, you think about your customer. These tactics are not necessarily along that line. So just just put a little disclaimer on there so afterwards I I don't hear about it. So the first one, the tactic of the hard sale. OK, and this is when the salesperson just basically is relentless. They don't accept. No, they stay with you. They walk alongside you. You say, I'd like to take it for a test drive. They say, I'll go with you. You're like, "Oh, Great. You're not leave me alone. They just follow you wherever you go. We actually had somebody at our door yesterday, a financial guy. And, and I was like, we're, we're leaving. We're, we're heading out the door. Oh, do you want me to go with you? Where are you go? It was kind of that feeling. OK, relentless. They just will not accept. No. Second tactic is that they go ahead and they disguise the price. So they're basically communicating to you, this won't cost you that much. So they ask you a question like, so what do you want your monthly payments to be? And you're like, oh, monthly payments? I don't know, like $150, $200? We can do that not telling you that it's maybe going to cost you $60,000 with all the interest and the payments for years and years and years. So they, they, they hide the price. They disguise, disguise the price and tell you it's not going to cost that much. Another thing they do is the trade-in trick. You bring in your used car. They say, oh, yeah, the Subaru Forester, for sure. We, you know, I could add $1,000 to your trade-in on that one. The blue book is this, but I'll, add, I'll go ahead and add $1,000 to that just to say I'm here to help you but they're not communicating to you that they are making probably $4,000 a profit on the car that you're going to be purchasing. Another tactic is that they answer your questions with misleading information. So for example, you come to the car and you're like, you know what, as I'm looking at it, the is kind of off and there's a dent right here. Like the Carfax report says there's not been an accident on this car, but as I'm looking at it, I'm not sure. So you're asking the question about the accident and what they do is a Oh, our guys could take care of that dent. Yeah, we'll go, ahead and, we'll go ahead and fix that for you. We'll take care of that. So once you drive off the lot, you won't even see that. Not even answering your question. And the last thing I think we've all experienced is the hidden fees that go on. What it actually costs you is not given up front. It's only when you sit down and get ready to sign the papers that there's this undercoating or this rust proofing or this registration or there's stocking fee. All of these hidden costs that just get added the price of the car and you're surprised. Well, the reason I mention these tactics is because these tactics, in a sense, could be reflective of the con of worshiping other gods, the con of idolatry. And for those of you who are not familiar with that term idolatry, idolatry is basically taking anything good and making it a god. And it's anything good that makes this sales pitch to become God for you. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in the book of Exodus. So I want you to think for a second about a situation in which you found yourself receiving this sales pitch from another God. And you found yourself experiencing huge regret after you signed the papers. You were given this temptation, this sales pitch. You gave in, you signed it, and then there was this huge regret, like, what have I done? If you think about it, some of these tactics would apply. The hard sale, the fact that they are consistently present. I mean, if you think about our culture, we are bombarded with influences of things that say, worship me, worship me, worship me, worship me, worship me, worship me, worship me. Money, sex, power, position, perfection. Worship me, worship me, worship me. We hear it everywhere. And what happens too as we hear, the more we hear it, the more it becomes normal to us. Jerry Bridges has a book that's called Respectable Sins. And I think it's a brilliant book because it talks about the idea that the more things become normal, the more we're just accepting of it. Yeah, okay, this, I guess this is okay. And Romans one thirty two, the end of chapter one of Romans says warns us of this, that not only are you going to commit the sin, but then you're going to just give approval for everyone to do it as well. And there's also this this hard sale that goes on with, with the fallacy of, it's called ad populum, which basically is that phrase, everyone is doing it. If you've ever heard this expression, you know, 250 million people can't be wrong. Don't believe that. 250 million people can be wrong. And very wrong. So there's the hard sale. There's disguising the price. They make it appealing. These other gods that call for us to worship them. Asking things like, why don't you take me on a test drive? Let's give it a few months. See what happens. Or if if you don't like it, you can always just walk away. You can walk away from it. They make it appealing, but they don't tell you what it's going to cost you. There's the trade-in trick that they say they're here to help you. And the way they do that oftentimes is by saying, I'm offering something that God himself cannot provide. Because God, you know, I've been on his lot before. I've been on his car lot before. And he's restrictive. I mean, look at this, 10 commandments? Come on. This God is restrictive. Working with God is just miserable. He's a bully. He's a bad guy. We just paint him in in that light. Another thing that happens is our questions, the questions that we ask, they get bypassed, they get ignored. We ask maybe, what about my relationship with God? If I, if I begin to serve this God, what happens to my relationship with God? And, and this is maybe the message that we hear. You know, that's a good question. What about my relationship with God? Well, I, I don't even think he's here right now. He's really busy with a lot of other things. He's got a lot of other things on his plate. Or maybe we might ask, what about, what about the cost to my family, to my friends, to my reputation, to my job? And then we hear, they'll never need to know. They'll never need to know. What about my conscience, which says, this is wrong. This is wrong. And we maybe hear this. You're being old school right now, Chad. Follow your heart. You deserve this conscience, conscience. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, are the hidden fees. With Any idol, with any other God that offers to be worshipped instead of the living God. At the start, it offers everything. Everything you dreamed, it offers. And what it asks for is absolutely nothing. But in the end, it offers nothing. And asks for everything. I would encourage you to talk to anyone who has struggled with drug and alcohol addiction. And they will tell you that's exactly what happens. Starts by offering everything and asking for nothing. And then offers absolutely nothing and asks for my life. And we, as broken, sinful, fallen human beings, we take the bait. We believe the lie. We believe the sales pitch. All of us here in this room right now, in some way, shape, or form, are tempted or are indeed worshiping other gods. And this one little verse is a matter of life and death. Deuteronomy 8.19 says, There is certain death in following after other gods. And this commandment, this first commandment, sets the expectation for the nine other commandments. Let's read together Exodus twenty-one through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word this morning, we acknowledge that we have taken the bait, that we have believed the lie. And we ask, Lord, that you would diagnose our heart, that you would show us this morning where we are believing the lie and help us to see that there are no other gods but you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Context is always very important. Context is king. One of the things I think we need to understand is when the scripture says, You shall have no other gods before me, how would they understand the phrase other gods? How would the original audience understand the phrase other gods? Well, there's three characteristics of other gods. The first characteristics that they, first characteristic that they would understand about other gods was that they were plural other gods. There were many of them. There were hundreds of thousands of gods, and they were assigned to various responsibilities and tasks. And most of them involved surprise, surprise, God's creation. So there was a god of the sun, a god of the moon, a god of the land, a god of the rain, a god of fertility. There were gods assigned to so many different responsibilities and different tasks. So they were multiple. And for us in our context, in our culture, it is important for us to recognize too that these idols, these other gods that are asking for our attention can be anything. We could come up with anything to worship, really. Second, they're not only plural, they're also impersonal. They didn't have a relationship with people. They were, you couldn't see them, you couldn't hear from them. You were basically kind of guessing your way to, to understanding them. And the way in which you got a response from them was basically to try to manipulate them, to try to get their attention. And some of the ways that they would do this were awful, child sacrifice, or going into a prostitution tent, or whatever it might be. You're trying to get their attention so that they'd respond to you. But ultimately, there was no relationship. Man's actions prompted their response. Will you do something for me? Will you do something for me? Will you do something for me? So they were plural, they were impersonal, and lastly, they were impotent. They really didn't have much power. They were very limited in their scope of what they could do. Why is that? Because they were man-made. Whatever power was given to them was not inherent in them in and of themselves. We gave them power. We gave them authority. And today, as we look at the scripture, I want to propose that because God is not plural, he's singular. Because God is not impersonal, he is very personal. And because God is not impotent, he is all powerful. We are called to worship him with our exclusive love and trust. First, God requires Our exclusive worship. Why? That sounds a little arrogant, sounds a little narcissistic. Let's not. God demands our exclusive worship because guess what? He's the only God. There's no other option of who to worship. That's why it's exclusive. I am the Lord your God, singular. Genesis 1 1, the first four words of Scripture tell us this In the beginning. God, the end of scripture, revelation 22, 13. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. There is no other God exclusive worship. Yes, because there's no one else to worship. So we have to see in this command, you shall have no other gods before me. We have to see the irony of this command. You shall have no other gods. Why? There are no other gods. They are images that have no substance They are man's creation. We keep them alive even though they're not real. And God is the only initiator of life. We are here, friends. All of us are here right now because he was here first. I call it the grace initiative. I want you to do do something for me for a second. I want you to just take a breath, just just a deep breath, in and out. The reason that you have breath in your lungs is because of God. Apart from this grace initiative, you would be non-existent. God is the author of the entire story. Beginning and end. It is his story, history. The storyline begins and ends with him. And he is an active part of everyone's story, I just wanted to share a brief story, and I apologize. I'm sure some of you, many of you, have heard this story, but for those of you who haven't, it just illustrates for me how I have seen God as an active part of my own personal story. And I'll try to be brief about it. I can tend to get wordy with this one because I, I think the story is amazing and just how God worked. But when I, w- I was an ignoramus in college. Uh, and for some reason, like I had certain words and certain expressions that I thought I knew the meaning to, but I was totally off. For example, if I went up to a sign of, of a town and it said uh, uh, Swamico, and it said underneath it unincorporated, I thought that was uncooperative. So I would picture like everybody in the town going, you can't count me. You can't count me. Like it was this uncooperative town. Like we can't count them. They just keep running around. I don't know why. The expression take it with a grain of salt up until I was in probably college. I thought it was take it with a great assault. So when someone would say take it with a great grain of salt, I'd be like, Oh wow. Yeah. I need to take that really seriously. But another word, I I don't know why this is, but another word that would catch me was the word bliss. And the word bliss in my mind, I'm not kidding you. I don't know where this came from. The word bliss meant chaos and confusion not kidding you like that's what it meant and when i would picture like a state of utter bliss it would be like i would picture this is what i picture i picture like broken glass or a broken mirror like (laughs) that's a state of utter bliss okay all right and for those of you don't know what bliss means i'll help you let me help you now so you don't have to deal with what i dealt with it means like utter joy and happiness just so you know okay so this is what i pictured bliss to mean chaos and confusion (laughs) breaking glass so I'm in college, and I'm writing a term paper, of course, at the last minute, on Romeo and Juliet. It's about 2 in the morning. I'm sitting in my dorm. I'm writing this on my little Commodore 64, and I'm, um, I'm writing it out. I'm typing it out, and I was, like, talking about the scene where Romeo finds Juliet, and he thinks she's dead. So I'm, like, writing it out. Okay. It's like, okay, what, what, how would I describe what he's feeling here? You know where this is going. Well, broken glass, chaos, confusion. What's happening? A ah, state of utter bliss. Papers written. I turn in the paper. About a week later, professor, who was a theater professor, so he had a flair for dramatics, hands the papers back in a lecture room probably this size, this size of people. And he says, you know, we, we, I got the papers back. You guys all did, uh, you all did pretty well. But there was one. I thought we were in college. I really did. I thought we were in college. Someone, someone actually wrote that Romeo was in a state of utter. And he grabs his pen. He's like, B-L-I-S-S. She's dead. She's dead. Yay, she's dead. She's dead. He He starts dancing around the room. And it's funny, but it's tragic because... You have one person sitting in the room who is mortified, who is humiliated, who is wanting the floor to swallow him up at that moment. I was humiliated. I was red-faced. I was ashamed. And I made a vow. Even in that moment, I was like, shut up, Chad. Don't ever talk again. Don't ever speak. Don't ever say anything. You're going to screw it up. Just shut up. I was humiliated. It scarred me. It really did. It was a horrible experience. So, about 10 years later, 10 years later, remember the word on the wall, 10 years later, I'm sitting in graduate school in a similar lecture hall. And I lean over to the person sitting next to me and I say, Hey, my name is Chad. And she says, Hi, my name is Bliss.
0: There she is.
1: And I said to her, I have real issue with your name. <laughs> and she said, okay, Frico, we'll talk later. Okay. So, so but one of the things, I, the reason I tell that story, the reason I tell that story is not just because I love that story, because it, it really was a significant turning point in my life, but that God was the only one that could have authored something like that. His sense of humor and his ability to do something like that, that, that's that's his working. That's his hand. And what he did for me in that story was he took a moment of complete shame and humiliation and he redeemed it with my bride, with my bliss. She's not my savior and I have a tendency to want to make her another God. But he redeemed it. And he said, here, Chad, here it is. Here's the true definition of the word, bless. He's the author of that story. And I want to ask us three diagnostic questions as we're thinking about this idea of other gods or idolatry. And the first diagnostic question I want that relates to this exclusive worship is this. Who or what is writing the story of my life? Who or what is writing the story of my life? Because how you answer that question could be a possible indicator of the presence of another God. They might be external. I think of Bliss and myself. We, we got on the train of soccer. And this was an external like story that we had to be part of. Like people all around us. Your kid's four? He's n- Wait, he's not in soccer yet? He's six. He's not in soccer yet. I was like, oh no, oh no. We got to get these kids in soccer. Honey, we got to get going. We're missing the train. If he's not in soccer, then what is he going to do when he's like eight or 10? He's going to be long gone. Like nobody's, He's not going to be able to catch up. Oh, we got to get him in soccer. We got to get him in soccer. And we find ourselves going to soccer practice and we're like, we hate this. <laughs> we hate this. Why are we doing this? So these, these gods, they can be external forces that are coming at but they can also be internal forces that are trying to write our story and maybe the question to ask with that is what stories are you trying to manipulate or change in your favor where are you trying to be the author how are you stealing the pen from the god of all creation Is it a marriage that doesn't appear to have the ending you want it to have? So you're writing, I want to change the ending to this one. This is not what I want and I'm changing, I'm changing it. Or have you lost something or lost someone and you're trying desperately to get them back? I'll do whatever I can to get it back. Give me that pen, Lord. I'm going to do it. I heard this week from somebody who'd lost someone very, very, very precious to them. And I heard a little bit of this language like, why am I here and they're not? I want to rewrite the story. I want want them to be here. I don't want to be here. I want them to be here. How do we steal God's pen and try to write it ourselves? What would change if our response to the situa- these situations, these difficult situations was, I am a character in your story, God. Write your story on and in my life. You, Lord, are a better writer than I am. What would change? There might be less grumbling. Oh, I hate this. Ah. There might be more contentment. Consider all things pure joy. There might even be more joy, particularly in suffering, because suffering, even suffering has purpose in his plan and in his authorship, according to Scripture. The Lord asks for our exclusive worship and us saying, you are God and no one else. You are God and no one else. Write your story on my life. Not only does he want our exclusive worship, he wants our worship to be in love, a response of love. Why? Because he first loved us and he's invested in us. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of slavery. First thing we need to notice is the possessive pronoun, your. God's people were his own people. This was different from a foreign understanding of God's where there really wasn't any relationship between God's and the people. And Israel was different because they didn't just shop around for different gods and find Yahweh. Yahweh found them. He was their first God. And so we see that relationship that he has with his people. And the other thing is the verb, you shall have no other gods. The verb, there's no Hebrew verb for to have. It's basically, the the way you translate it would be, there shall be to you no other gods. And it's the same term that's given to a marriage bond, which pledges not only our loyalty, but our dedicated love. I will be to you, your husband. You will be to me, my wife. And the salvation that he provided his people is like no other God they have or could ever have experienced. Other gods, all they do is enslave. God here says, freedom, freedom. And he loves them with a dedicated marital type of love that involves his own sacrifice. For Israel and Egypt, the sacrifice began with the Passover lamb over the doorposts, and they were saved from certain death and judgment. But for all of God's people, all of his people throughout the span of time, the Lamb of God, his son on the cross, was the sacrifice and protection he provided us. And so what do we do in response to that? I love the illustration of a bondservant. Let me just describe it real quickly. A bondservant was a servant who's been offered freedom. So they basically were serving someone probably because they had a significant debt they had to pay this person. So they're serving this person and their debt was paid. They were clear. But a bondservant of their own volition then chose to remain a servant and serve their master faithfully for the remainder of their life. The master didn't force them to stay to do his bidding. But it was the servant who chose joyfully and willingly to take on the role of bond servant, the bond, it's forever. So when we see the offer of love and sacrifice by Christ on the cross, we see him in essence proposing to us Will you marry me? Will you be my bride, Church? And the tone to which we read this verse is probably, for all of us with all of our stories, it's probably a little harsh. You shall have no other gods before me. We might hear it with that booming voice. But I'm wondering, what if we read that as a marriage vow? God saying this. I do not have any other people beside you. I have offered you freedom for your sin. And us responding. I shall have no other gods before you. And so we're, we're left with another diagnostic question for us to ask in this. When I am faced with extreme stress, difficulty, pain, struggle, or even impossible situation, where do I go for help? Where do I run? Do I run to a God of my choosing? Do I try to manipulate the things around me and try to find a God? Or do I run to a God who chose me and loves me? He loves to be loved. Not because he's a narcissist, but because he's the perfect embodiment of love. He wants you to taste and see that the Lord is good, even in your impossible situation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So we worship exclusively by saying, you are God, write your story in my life. And we worship lovingly saying, I'm yours for the rest of my life. But not only that, God wants us to worship him and respond to him with complete trust. Why? He says, I am the Lord. The difference between other gods and God Almighty had to do with reign and rule as king. No other gods during that time, or even since that time, have claimed ultimate authority. Like they are the end. Like they are the king. And even the one who did, Pharaoh. At this point, he has been dethroned. And Satan attempts to claim that. But his dominion has been dethroned. Pharaoh's army also been annihilated, destroyed in the sea. Sin no longer has control over us. And the question that Pharaoh asked at the beginning of Exodus was, Who is the Lord? Here he answers, I am the Lord. I am the ruler of all things. Other gods, completely impotent. The only power they have is the power which you give them. All power comes from above. And God alone is the source of any and every power. And so he asks us to take a knee. To entrust our lives to an all-powerful king. By taking a knee and bowing down to worship this king. Where, friends, are you placing your trust? Where are you bowing a knee? And I would ask this last diagnostic question. When an idol or an other God that we are trusting, taking a knee to, is threatened, meaning it's threatened like God's going to take over. I need you to pay attention to powerful emotion. I know I'm a counselor. I know you're in my ooh, emotion. But I tell you what, I've seen it. When idols get threatened, it's like the used car salesman goes into overdrive. Don't you dare, 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 don't you dare go serve God. Don't you dare serve that king. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. It's that kind of, it's that kind of strong emotion that comes out. I just remember even... My conversion, there is that battle, like, don't, don't, no, I, I want, it, it was that. it's that battle, don't you dare, I'm going to. So look for strong emotion, because that's the other gods' last-ditch tactic that they're going to use. I just want to close with one other story. One of my other gods, I'm confessing to you, in a public setting, uh, involves what I would call invisibility. And here's what it offers, or here's what it says If man can't see you, then man can't judge you. The perks of being a wallflower no one sees, no one can evaluate. And I know it's rooted in this fear, this deep fear I have of rejection. Protect yourself. Don't lock eyes with anyone. I was just telling someone a few days ago, if you notice, my back is crooked. I get this little hunch. You probably just think I have bad posture. I do. But it's because my seventh and eighth grade year, all I did was look at the floor. I did not look at anybody. I did not lock eyes with anybody. And it's permanently with me. It's still a part of my story. I hate it, but it's still there. So keep invisible, Chad. Keep invisible. No one can judge you. You can't get rejected. Told you we worship anything. Well, two weeks ago, a soccer theme keeps coming up. I signed up. We signed up Cadence and Colson for soccer, and we got an email that said, probably all received this. We're looking for helpers. We're looking for volunteers to help with soccer. Nobody's volunteered. We really need you. I fall into the sales tactic, and I'm like, all right, sure. I'll help out. help you guys out with soccer. And uh, I arrive at the first night of practice, and I go up to the leader, and I'm, I'm just looking forward to help corralling the kids and shepherding them around, making sure they stay in, in zone, and yeah, all that stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm with them, and I go up to the leader and I said, hey, I'm Chad. I'm here. And she goes, oh, here's your lanyard. Puts the lanyard on me. It says, Coach Chad. <laughs> I'm like, okay. All right. I said, okay, great. Uh, so the other person that's going to be with me, and she's like, oh, I'm sorry. He just called this morning. He's out. He dropped out. So it's just you. I'm like, okay, so who's going to be like leading the fundamentals training and all that stuff? And she's like, oh, oh, did you get the packet? I was like, oh, yeah, I got the packet. Well, that's what you're doing. Oh, oh wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm doing it? Like, I'm leading it? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, no. I'm becoming, I, the, the strong emotion I'm talking about, it's starting, it's starting to stir in me. It's starting to stir in me. And within seconds... I was brought to the front with this crowd of kids and parents, this non-athlete. And next to me are two coaches with their clipboard and their lanyards and their sign-up lists and their drills, and they're ready to go. And I hear him snickering. <laughs> Look at this guy. This guy over here, I'm just standing there. And then they start dividing the team. I'm like... it was awful. And then it got worse. Strong emotion. You see the strong emotion? It got worse. Then parents line
0: up along the field and watch you coach. The audience was there. And I, and I almost had a, like a panic attack right there on the field. That night, I went home. Is this working? Nope. Let me